Debbie and I don't go to many movies, but we went to a movie on Friday night. And it's a movie that I would invite you to attend. It's only in town for a week, and it's the movie Unplanned. It's done showing, as far as I know, on Thursday, this coming, coming Thursday. It's at the movie mill. And let me just say, the content in this movie is strong. So this is not something you would take children to. But as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, this issue of innocent life is an important one. And I encourage you to take it in. Let's pray for a moment. Father, as we bow together and look into your word, I would pray that you would speak to us from your word. And so you like to work, as I often say, with just open vessels. And so if I may, I just begin by saying, Lord, I want to be open before you to hear. And I, if I could, I'm just going to pray on behalf of the people here that together we just sort of say amen, which means I agree. Look, Lord, I want to hear from you today. I'm open to whatever you have. And so would you do that through your word, and we pray that it would be stuff for your honor and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's approximately a 90-minute walk from the monastery St. George's through the wadi. We would call it a gorge. This wadi is very deep. If you fell, you'd be done. It's about a 90-minute walk, and you see a picture of an overview, first of all, and then a more closer look with the two people walking, and in the distance, you see the ancient city of Jericho. And Debbie and I walked that trail and uh, down to Jericho, and we ended that walk that day at a large sycamore tree in the little community of Jericho. And a sycamore tree, one like this, was the setting for our story from God's Word today. Today we're looking at the fourth of five words in this little series called Five Words That Will Change Your Life. And the first week we looked at the word no, which we suggested is a very important word because if you want to say yes, which is the second word we looked at, I think you have to understand how to say a healthy no in order to say an appropriate yes. And when we kind of understand who we are and what we're called to do in life, it's just, it's just more apparent to us when we should say no and when we should say yes. So those are important words. Then last week, we looked at what I consider the hardest of the five words, the most difficult for us to process, and that's the word sorry. And the word sorry strikes at the heart of us owning our stuff, admitting where we're wrong, and repenting. And the word repenting, um, it, it means with God's help, I recognize what I've done wrong, and he helps me turn and go the other way doesn't expect me to do it on my own, but metanoia, it means to turn and go the other way. And so the reason this word is so difficult for us is because it strikes right at the heart of our pride. And we have to humble ourselves to really embrace that word. So I would suggest that word is the hardest 
of the five words. Today's word, I'm going to suggest, is the most countercultural of the five words. All through the Bible, you see these countercultural ideas that are uh, laid before us, that are lived out by people like Jesus and others. And today's word is the most countercultural. In other words, it sort of flies in the face of the predominant thinking of the existing culture. And it's not that everyone in the culture does this, but it's sort of predominant type thinking. And so today's word is the word enough. You know, we can go through life, if I can use just a physical demonstration to illustrate, with a couple of different postures, and you might even want to do this with me. The first posture would be my fists clenched tightly like this. And when I squeeze my fists like this, it's sort of this outward expression of this idea of going through life, holding desperately onto my stuff. I do not want to let go of my stuff. The other posture is that of the open palm. An open hand before God. And when my hand is open like this, really what I'm saying is, God, whatever comes into my life, which the Bible tells me everything I have is a gift from Him, even the capacity to make the things I make or to produce the things I produce, all of it ultimately is a gift from Him. And when I have an open hand before God, I'm saying, whatever comes into my life, God, I'm going to hold it loosely. I'm going to share it easily. I'm going to trust you fully. I'm going to say that again. Whatever, whatever comes into my life, I'm going to hold it loosely. I'm going to share it easily. And I'm going to trust you fully. And so we can go through life like this, which sadly many people, not everybody, but many people do in our culture. And I would suggest this is one of the prominent themes of our world. Or we can go through life like this, saying, God, I'll trust that you will give me enough. That in fact, you are the God of enough. That in fact, you are the God of abundance. And so I don't have to position myself in life as a taker. Because that's, that's often the way our heart is at least initially oriented, as that of a taker. And in our culture, as I've suggested, we're often encouraged to have this position in life as a taker. But as followers of Jesus, he wants us to have this more open-handed approach. And he says, I've given everything to you. I've given so much to you. And I, I want you to live with this open-handed approach because it's really a wonderful way to do life. Living like that begins by saying, enough. I have enough. Now, let me just say very clearly, there's nothing wrong with stuff. There's nothing wrong with resources, with money, with talents or abilities, any of those things. It's even okay. It's totally fine to have nice stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm saying. But there's this recognition that I have enough. 
And this is the kind of idea that I will talk to you about, and I count it an incredible privilege. I'll talk to you about this once or twice a year because it's such an important part of life that we often don't hear if we're just doing life out there. It's such an important part of living a rich, full life. The inability to say enough is pretty rampant. I was looking at this study from Stanford University, and these researchers asked a bunch of people in Paris this question, when do you know when you've had enough food? The most common answer of the people in Paris was, when I feel full. When I feel full, I stop, and I say, I've had enough. Then they asked the same set of questions in a large city in the United States. And the most common answer was this, I know when I've had enough food when all the food is gone. When my plate is clean, and then the third most popular one was, when the TV show I was watching is over. (laughs) Then I know I've had enough. So then they took these groups of people, and they did another experiment. They put them in two different rooms, and in group A, they gave them a bowl of soup, and they said to them, you can have, and it was really delicious soup, you can have as much of this soup as you want. Just ask, we'll fill your bowl back up. And so they started eating. In group number two, they gave them the same soup, only the the group didn't know this, but they had somehow hooked up this hose to the bottom of the bowl, and it it would just keep the bowl full. And as much as you ate, it would just keep filling it up. And of course, what did they find happened? The group with the hose up to the bowl ate twice as much as the group that didn't have that. We find it hard to say enough. Even though they weren't hungry, even though they were full, they just kept on eating. We tend to do the same kind of stuff with stuff, possessions and money. We tend to think of ourselves actually as very generous people in our culture. But if you look at the statistics, the vast majority of us here in Canada give away between absolutely nothing, zero, and 1% of our income. The vast bulk of us, zero to 1%. In a place where, you know, we have our bumps in our society, but we are a blessed country. We have so much. If you've traveled the world at all, you know we are blessed in Canada. And yet, and again, this isn't everybody, and there's lots of people that are generous in our culture, but the vast bulk of the culture isn't. And yet God says in his word, when you're my follower, I want, you to, I want you to begin, in fact, he says this is just this great launching point in life because it will provide you a rich, and we're going to define that in a few minutes, a rich, full life. I want you to begin a great launching point to take you on this actually wonderful journey is tithing, which the Bible just says is 10% off the top of everything that God brings into our life. And we do this, as I prayed just a few minutes ago, as an expression of trust, that he is the God of enough. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that less with God is actually more. And it's, it's not 
math as we understand it. Biblical math is quite different. Less is actually more with God. And he is the God, the Bible says in the Lord's Prayer, who gives us our daily bread, who in the book of Exodus gives us manna. And he does all of this and he provides for all of us as an expression of love. And he asks, am I going to live like this or am I going to live like this? Now the struggle for most of us, including me, is in our mind, there's this difference between what I make, the income, for example, that I make in life, whatever that number is, and it's different for all of us, obviously, and then in my mind, what I conceive that I need or I want. So there's these two different numbers, what I actually make and what I think I need to have what I need or what I want. And the difference between those two numbers, what I make and what I think I need, is what I would like to call the discontentment zone. The discontentment zone. And I'm going to argue that a lot of people in our world live in the discontentment zone between what they make and what they think they need to have enough. Because we're thinking, I just don't have enough right now. If only I had enough, if only I had that much, then I would no longer be discontent. If only I had as much as that person over there and how much I think they have, then I think I would be content. And so we work harder and we work longer and we work faster and we do it all with this driving motivation to acquire more. And you know what? Again, I'm going to suggest there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with working overtime or something like that and, and being really wise with your money and even acquiring things. But so often the motive behind this is that if only I could have enough. And so I live my life in the discontentment zone. And we go through life <laughs> with this myth, thinking happiness can be purchased. If I just had enough money, then I would have enough happy. And, and I'm just going to make a personal observation. In my life, kind of what I've seen is that selfish people tend to be pretty miserable. And generous people seem to be a lot more joy-filled. Let me say it again. It's tough stuff. Selfish people seem to be pretty miserable. And very generous people tend to be increasingly joyful. And so it's pretty countercultural to say things like that. That's not what the advertisers would suggest to us, typically. And so I want us to look for a few minutes together at a guy who came to the place in the crossroads in his life where he said, enough. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, which is the third book in the New Testament. There's four biographies about the life of Jesus. Luke was a medical doctor and a historian, and he wrote about the life of Jesus in the third book of the New Testament, Luke chapter 19. Beginning, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. But we're just going to walk through those verses together. And the story begins like this. 
I don't know exactly what direction Jesus entered Jericho from, but maybe he went through the Wadi Kelt like Debbie and I did a few years ago from the area where St. George's Monastery would later be built and did that trail down to um, Jericho. I don't know if that's the direction he came, but he comes into Jerusalem and it says, Jericho rather, and it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Let me just stop right there because just those very few words tell us an awful lot about this situation. We know right away that Zacchaeus understood money. We know that depending on how you define the word good, he was good at acquiring money. We know, based on what happened in that culture, that he was, in a driving way, motivated by money. He was prepared to sacrifice everything for money. Because at that time in history, Israel was occupied by Rome. And the Romans had discovered that the most effective way to generate income, um, unlike many previous um, groups of people that had conquered countries, they would often exile the people. Not all of them would do this in history, but they often would. They'd split them up so it wasn't as big a deal to keep them under control. No, the Romans would um, keep them there, and they would tax them half to death, and they would generate income for themselves. And they discovered that the most effective way to do this was to hire local people who understood the culture and who knew who in the culture had the resources and could extract the most tax from. And so they would hire local tax collectors. And these local tax collectors were then seen by the people in Israel as traitors to the people of Israel. They were seen as people that were colluding with the oppressors of their society. So when we talk about tax collectors here, we're not talking about people from Revenue Canada, okay? We're really not. These guys in Israel at that time were corrupt individuals. Revenue Canada, they're doing their job. And and I don't suppose anybody loves paying their taxes, but we're really blessed in our country, aren't we? We live in a great place. And one of the reasons for that, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is because there's responsible people collecting taxes and spending them on our behalf. But in this culture, it was a very different story. And so I'm imagining that people would try to buy Zacchaeus off, don't tell them about my resources, and they'd try to bribe him. Or he would say, the Romans would say, we want you to tax them at this level, and he'd get them to pay at this level, and then he would skim the money off the top. And if anybody had a problem with what he was doing, he would just have the Roman soldiers from the local garrison pay them a visit. And nobody wanted that to happen because they were ruthless. And Zacchaeus wanted more. The fact that he was a chief tax collector meant he was wholly motivated by money. He would sacrifice relationships, he sacrificed his nation, he sacrificed community with people, he sacrificed his integrity, he sacrificed his morality, and and basically he sacrificed everything in life to get more. And he became rich because he did it through wrong means. 
And there's any number of people that become quite wealthy through very moral, legitimate means. This guy didn't. And he was very, quote-unquote, good at acquiring money in this way. But over time, we're going to see in verses 3 and in 4, over time, he began to see the emptiness of this pursuit in life. And I would argue that everyone in our culture sees this, whether they admit this or not, whether they recognize this in themselves or not, it was beginning to gnaw at him because he was living in the discontentment zone. And it was gnawing at him. And so let's see what happens in verses 3 and 4. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was because he'd heard about the rumors. They would have been flying around all around the country about this Jesus guy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, like we saw in the picture not long ago, since Jesus was coming that way. In ancient days, I said this just a few weeks ago, but in ancient days, rich, powerful men never ran. That's just not something. That was a social faux pas. Because you would have to pull up your robe and expose your legs, which they didn't do. It wasn't considered dignified. And rich, powerful men didn't climb trees in those days. That, again, was something you would not do. And so we know he really wants to see Jesus. He really wants to hear what Jesus has to say because I have a sense that something's gnawing inside of him. The feeling of more and more and more, if I could only get enough, was beginning to wear off. So he climbs the tree. And Jesus comes walking along, and Jesus does something, because Jesus so often does this. He does something that absolutely nobody expects. Certainly not Zacchaeus, and certainly no one else expects this. It says in verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And everybody is choked. See, Jesus knows supernaturally that there's something going on in this guy's life. And he wants to speak into this guy's life. And everybody looks at Jesus and they're going, are you kidding me? You're going to go to the house of the guy that's in the protection racket? You're going to go and have lunch and stay the night at a horribly corrupt bureaucrat's home? I can't believe it. And here's the thing about Jesus, if you read his story. His story is, no matter what our story is, maybe our life is a train wreck. Maybe it isn't, but maybe it is. Maybe we're not corrupt, or maybe we are. Maybe we haven't handled our finances so well, or maybe we have. Maybe we're dishonest, maybe we're not. Maybe we're greedy, maybe we're not. Whatever the case may be. None of those things or any other things I could mention are a barrier to Jesus coming to your house today. And I know it makes no sense on the human level. But this is one of those deeply countercultural moments 
that we see at work in the life of Jesus because Jesus loves to bring grace to anybody who will open their life up to him. So it says in verses 6 and 7, So Zacchaeus came down from the tree at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people, not some of the people, all the people saw this and began to mutter, Jesus is gone to be the guest of a sinner. And so Zacchaeus says, totally Jesus, I'd love to have you at my place. Come on, let's go. And all of the people begin to mutter about this. And if you read again, if you read the life of Jesus, you'll see that quite often in the Bible, Jesus does stuff to tick people off. He doesn't do anything wrong, but the things he does do ticks them off. And so sometimes he'll, he'll go and he'll heal somebody who's deeply in need. And the religious and intellectual elite of the society, the Pharisees, are mad at him. How could you do that? How could you help that person that's sick? Another time he, in, in, in the book of John, he talks to this Samaritan woman, a woman who's a social outcast, who has to go and get water at noonday, a time of day you would never go and get water then because it's incredibly hot. You go and get water early in the morning. And so she's there all by herself, because nobody wants anything to do with her. And Jesus speaks to her, and his leadership team comes along, and they're totally choked. They're going, I can't believe he would talk to her. Sometimes he would go and he would get something to eat on a day that they considered the wrong day, because they had all these rules, to get something to eat. And so the Sadducees, another group of people, they wanted his head. And so different people at different points would be ticked off at Jesus. There's only one time in I, that I know of in the New Testament that we are told that everybody was choked with Jesus. And that's right here. Wouldn't you like to know? I'd like to know. What Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about while they had supper or whatever together. But whatever it is they talked about, it triggered thoughts and actions in Zacchaeus that he had never contemplated before. And he looks in a way that he can't believe he's doing it at how he structured the resources in his life. And he comes to the place that this incredibly grand house that he has, that he's gotten on the backs of people, that he was so proud of, that he abused so many people and cheated so many people to get. This house that he was so proud of now actually is a prison for him. So I'm guessing, I don't know for sure because the text doesn't say, but I'm guessing that maybe, maybe Jesus said stuff like this to Zacchaeus, just based on other things we read in the Bible. Maybe he said something like this to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, your whole life, You've been a money guy. You've chased it hard, haven't you? And obviously, look around the place and you go, obviously, uh, you've, you've accumulated some significant resources. You've got money. You and I know that you're not the most popular person in the culture, so you've sacrificed a lot to get that money. You obviously love money. Would I be safe in assuming, Zacchaeus, that money is number one in your life? 
Could I ask you a real personal question, Zacchaeus? Has that pursuit got you in life where you hoped it would? Zacchaeus, can I ask you, is it enough? You used to have to walk everywhere, but after you first became a tax collector, you got some money, so you bought yourself a donkey. And when the thrill of the donkey wore off, you thought to yourself, upgrade to a camel. And after a little while, the camel, um, you know, uh, which you really appreciated because it was kind of in the ancient world and, and to a certain extent still in the Middle East, it's kind of like the Hummer of the ancient world. It's like a four-wheel drive Jeep. And that was really cool to have. But the thrill of that wore off pretty soon. So after a while, you got yourself a two-hump camel because those are quite rare in the Middle East. I've just got to have me one of those. But eventually, the new camel smell wore off, and so you started buying a whole fleet of camels. Can I ask you, Zacchaeus, how many camels will it take? You used to wear really shabby clothes. Then you bought yourself a silk robe and then another one, and then pretty soon you had a whole closet full of silk robes. Then you got your colors done, and you found out you're actually a winter, and all your silk robes are earth tones, so you had to get all new robes. Then you, you, know, you used to live in a tent. Then you got a house. And then you went out and you bought some riverfront property on the Jordan River, and you built the most spectacular house in the community. And now you have the nicest house in town. You know, John Ortberg has said this. Just listen to these words. You can be satisfied with your money, but you can never be satisfied in your money. You can be satisfied with your money, but you can never be satisfied in your money. Zacchaeus, can I suggest to you that you will only be satisfied in life in a relationship with God. And it's only there. If you make money your God, you will always be dissatisfied. And it's only in relationship with God that you're going to find a burgeoning joy and contentment. And really what that means, Zacchaeus, is that you've got to surrender absolutely everything to me. Not just some stuff, everything. I want you to follow me with all your heart. I want to teach you, because this has been the God of your life, to be a generous person, something you've never been. And these kinds of thoughts or thoughts like this, I'm guessing, went through Zacchaeus' mind, and in a very dramatic moment, it says in verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to Jesus, look, Lord, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And everybody is staggered. The crowds would have been hanging around the courtyard trying to listen to what was being talked about. They're deeply stunned. Mrs. Zacchaeus is thinking, hey, shouldn't we have talked about this first? I just put a down payment on that yacht for cruising the Mediterranean. And their 16-year-old son is saying, what, Dad, does this mean I don't get my new camel with the sports package and the AC attached? But you see, Zacchaeus is so taken by his new life in Christ that he recalculates every priority in life in light of the kingdom of God. See, this is what happens 
when, 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 you're, when, you're, when you commit your life to Jesus totally, it, it's a point, but it's also a process where he, he just comes in and he begins to massage every priority of life and just change it and transform it for the good. And so Zacchaeus in verse 8 moves from the discontentment zone to the generosity zone. He moves from the discontentment zone to the generosity zone. And what does Jesus say in verses 9 and 10? He says, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Salvation has come, and you are a son of Abraham. This is one of the greatest compliments you could pay someone back then. If you were to say to them, you are a son of Abraham or a daughter of Sarah. And trust me, nobody in that culture called him a son of Abraham. They called him a lot of other things. They didn't call him that. And so Jesus gives him like one of the ultimate compliments because of what has been done in his life through God. You're now a son of Abraham. Now, understand very clearly, he didn't receive salvation because he paid for it, okay? Don't get confused and think that's what's going on here because the Bible is abundantly clear. You can't pay for your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. There isn't a list of do's and don'ts that you need to entertain in order to receive salvation. Salvation is something that's completely unmerited, completely unwarranted that you receive as a gift from God based on what Jesus did for you on the cross. And so Jesus says, you've received new life in me and you've been healed. And Zacchaeus moves from the place in life where he's controlled by the disease of more and he's removed from that ugly treadmill that many people spend most of their life on. So here's the real truth about the word enough. Enough is not a level of wealth or acquisition of stuff that we achieve. Enough is a statement of trust we declare. You know, economists talk about the irrational theory of choice the idea being that rational people, when it comes to finances, as I talked about, they just do straight math. As long as I have 100% of what I've earned and I keep 100% of that, I own 100% of that. And the Bible contests that kind of thinking in a very countercultural way, as I said. It says things like this in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 10 and 11. It says, Isaiah says, And if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. That's kind of a cool idea, eh? Your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And so God is really saying, less 
is actually more with him. He's saying you don't have to flounder around and try to make these choices and decisions on your own. He'll guide you in this. He says, it said there in verse 11, the Lord will guide you always. And it's not, as the Bible tells, it's not about equal gifts. It's about equal sacrifice. And so it looks different in each person's life. But we can ask and God will lead us how to give, to whom to give, and how much to give. He, he takes care of all that stuff. And there's, there's just no pressure about it. If someone tries to pressure you about that stuff, back rapidly out of the room. This is not a pressure thing. This is a, just a surrender thing. God, what would you have me do? And then you just do exactly what he leads. So here's my dream. First of all, let me just say that <laughs> I know there's a lot of people in this church. I don't know what people give. But I know there's a lot of people in this church who don't under, just understand these things on an intellectual basis or be, uh, level, but, but they actually live this stuff out. They live in the generosity zone. And this is a very giving church. This is a church that touches people around the world and in this community very extensively. I hear those kind of comments out in the community about this place all the time. You know, oh, you're the pastor at that church. That's the church that does beep, 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 beep. And I hear these things a lot. And so thank you that you're giving people. That's such a good thing. God is honored in this. But here's my dream, and I know this is scary stuff. Trust me, I do. But my dream is that for some of us, we're just discovering this, and we're on a bit of a journey with this, and we're just beginning to learn this. And so my dream is that, that increasingly, we would be known as individuals and as a church of the open hand. And I get the fear part, but as a follower of Jesus... If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, let me just gently ask you, as your pastor, have you made that commitment, because it's very biblical, it's all through there, that that, that first 10% off the top is just a launching point for the generosity zone. And that when you do that, God takes care. Now, it doesn't give us license to go out and do crazy things, but when we're responsible or whatever, he takes care of us. And that actually less is actually more with him. I've certainly discovered this in my life. Certainly discovered this in my life. And when I say enough, God takes me from the discontentment zone to the generosity zone. 